reporter teeters on the brink and Harry and Megan go over it. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Flowery, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and Jack Butler. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are thefire.org. Moink and Acton Unwind. More about all of them in due course. For some reason, you're not already following us on a streaming service. You can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So before we do anything else on the program, let's hear from our friends at thefire.org. You know only one in three Americans believe we can fully exercise our free speech rights. That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. Org. That's www.thefire.org. So this is a particularly special episode because we are all at NR World Headquarters here together for our Christmas party. We're sitting around a table the way proper podcasters are. We have microphones in front of our faces. These microphones are so good, by the way. I think Hitler probably invented uh, the, these microphones. But it's a pleasure seeing everyone in person. So Jack Butler, let's go to the, the border first. I mean, we've seen the... It's sometimes it's not true, but sometimes seems like the only person who's covering the border is Bill Malusian of <laughs> right. Fox News, who's sleepless, going day and night, and just the last week or so, just had incredible video of groups of 500, a group of 1,000 at El Paso the other day, apparently the largest crossing on record in El Paso. And this is prior to Title 42 probably going away next week. What do you make of it? Well, basically how I see this is... We have a bit of a paradox when it comes to immigration enforcement in this country when Democrats control the government, which is that, yes, basically immigration enforcement is in the main a national federal responsibility, but Democrats don't really want to do it. And so we had also the, the interesting news story this week of Arizona Governor Doug Ducey improvising a, a kind of border solution by stacking shipping containers on the Arizona portions of the U.S.-Mexico border. And now the, the Biden Justice Department is suing Arizona over this policy. So the, the premise of this suit, presumably, is that you can't do this because this is a federal matter. But then the problem is, then why isn't the federal part of the government actually doing something? And so long as the Democratic Party doesn't really reckon with the fact that nations have borders and people tend to like those borders being enforced, then we're just going to keep having spectacles such as the ones that Bill covers so well. And I don't, I don't really foresee any change in this pattern uh, unless, I don't know, unless the political incentives change, which they well might. I mean, as, as Michael Brandotti likes to point out, the, the, what you really can get Democrats to do ultimately is to They'll act on this issue when it's uh, it becomes not border control, but Republican control, when it starts to look like it's becoming an issue that Republicans can use against Democrats, then suddenly Democrats will pretend to be worried about it. So maybe that'll happen soon. Maybe the impending change in control of the House will allow House Republicans to make more of this. But for the meantime, expect more images such as the ones that we've been seeing lately. So do you know Bill, Bill Malugin? 
You you've made fun of me before <laughs> I on this first name basis by the first, thing. first name. I just want to. I'm afraid of mispronouncing his last name. No, so are you I confident? Of I, that? Use, I use that tactic a lot. I am. Okay. I am, okay. I'm, I'm a Bill Malusian, Fox News viewer. Okay. So, Maddie, these are the kind of caravans that Trump was warning about, and very often would dissipate. I know there'd be a group supposedly of five thousand coming, and then they'd flake off before they got to the border in mass. But this group of a thousand, they came in twenty buses. They were escorted by the Mexican police and they, they get across and it's not around that, as though they're being turned around and going home. They're getting processed into the country and part of the Biden plan, supposedly I'm doing air quotes, to deal with the end of Title 42 is some of it's, okay, we're going we're gonna to build more structure and surge more resources. But some of it's just we're going to process these people faster, which is, which is the, the, uh, the attitude that has created this problem in the first place. We're going we're gonna to let you in. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Processing times with these things are incredibly backlogged and it's not you can't just decide to fix it. You you've got to actually implement the structural changes necessary to make that happen. So, not not sure I believe that. But yeah, Title 42 was supposed to be related to COVID. We're now well out of COVID. It's it's clearly not being done for public health grounds. And this is just this pretext that has become convenient for everybody involved, but it's no long-term solution. They need to, they need to be addressing this, and they need to be doing so with with bipartisan support now that Republicans have the House. So, Charlie, you, if I'm not mistaken, described the shipping of migrants to northern cities, and I, th- I think the Martha Vineyard stunt from DeSantis as well. It's just a cry for help from border governors, and that seems to be very much the category that that the Ducey shipping container tactic falls into. Yes. Unfortunately, the law and good policy are on opposite sides in both the examples that you've cited in that Title 42 needs to end because the Mm -hmm. statutory authority for it is contingent upon there being an emergency, which there is not. And the shipping container stunt, as you put it, is probably on shaky legal ground because the land in question is federal and therefore the state of Arizona does not have primacy. Just technically, I call the Martha Vineyard thing a stunt. I think this is a little more than a stunt. It might, it might have, you know, has some material effect. Right. Either way, the upshot is that to follow the law is probably to allow many more illegal immigrants into the country than would otherwise be allowed in, or at least to allow them in more quickly and make processing them more difficult. And when you have that scenario and you have a president who has almost plenary power in this area because Congress has delegated so much power to him and a president who doesn't want to do his job on the border, then immigration restrictionists or those who just want the laws as written enforced are relegated to stunts. And that's what we're beginning to see. I, I do think it is a good example, though, of the disconnect between the public sentiment on this political question and the Democratic Party's ideology. Because Joe Biden, notwithstanding the midterm results, is still pretty unpopular. Most people in the United States think the country is on the wrong track. And one of the areas where Biden is most vulnerable is the border. And it seems to me that there is a great amount of space available to Biden to run into 
and say, well, I was going to be a moderate, middle-of-the-road, problem-solving sort of president. I'm going to fix this. But he hasn't, and he won't. And I think he's opening himself up because if you look at these stunts, they're popular. They haven't hurt the people who orchestrated them, and they don't seem to do any damage to their reputation and opinion polls. I find that baffling. Yeah, Jack, the thing that might have made a difference here to the, the administration's posture on the border is if they markedly and noticeably paid some political price in the midterms for, for this right. a debacle, which there was a lot of focus on you know, in the right-wing media and also in advertising, and they, they probably feel like we, we, got off, we got off the hook. Yeah, and that happened, though, look to Arizona, for example. Mark Kelly at least had to pretend to care about this issue in debates. Mm -hmm, right. But now what I would wonder and what I would strongly suspect is whether politicians such as Mark Kelly, now reelected as senator from Arizona, will just go back to only at best fig leaf measures about this question. But that uh, to reiterate what I said earlier, it's not as an issue, it's not something that really goes away. It's a it's a bit of an attrition thing, and it builds over time, if not addressed, to the point where, as I said, it becomes, at the very least, in the political interests of Democrats to do something about it, even if they don't care about any of the attendant issues of essentially uncontrolled crossing of the U.S.-Mexican border. So whether whether actually anything comes of it or whether it will require another, an actual electoral punishment that didn't really from the Biden administration seem to happen or remains to be seen. So I ask a question to you, Maddie. The situation at the border will get worse such that there's serious political pressure on Joe Biden to truly change course at the border sometime between now and 2024 election. Yes or no? So I'm getting deja vu. And I think last time I said yes. Did I ask you exactly this question? I, <laughs> it does have a familiar feel. And I think I said yes, and it doesn't seem to have really materialized yet. So I, I, I guess I'll still say yes, but maybe say yes, but slowly. I think the answer is yes. It hasn't happened yet, but this is a liability that they will realize is a liability, especially if polls start showing Biden or the Democratic replacement candidate losing ahead of the next election. Yes. yes. Butler. I'm in concurrence. This is crazy. I could just make eye contact with you and get you to- <laughs> What a concept. Didn't have to call on you. <laughs> That's why I sort of overstepped you. So yes. Yeah, yes. the answer is yes, from me. I think it's a tough one. I think it's, it's, it's yes, it's going to, they're going to feel compelled to do a little better than what, what we may see in a, a week's time, which truly could be a deluge. But it's not going to be much better because they're just very ideological on this. And, and I, I don't think really feel as though the U.S., ultimately has legitimacy to exclude bogus asylum seekers from the country. They think they should get in and be part of the process, and, and they're never going to deport them if their claims are rejected. So on the, on the Ducey thing, the shipping containers, apparently the, the Biden administration promised, like the, the Yuma Gap is like a thing, you know, it has its name, it's a real phenomenon. And they said, we're, we're going to deal with this, don't worry, we're going to plug it up, and they never did. So this is an attempt to say, all right, we'll do it, and then create a fact on the ground, and maybe you get some negotiation where, okay, we'll, we'll take the containers off when you, when you start building the actual structure you promised. But, you know, the, the, the big problem with that theory is Carrie Lake was not elected governor of Arizona. Are you sure? Yeah, Katie Hobbs was, and, and she's already said she's not, not on board this idea. So Charlie Cook, let's go to you for a read from our friends at Moink. Indeed. And Sarah isn't even available today to try to steal my Moink read. Mm -hmm. So I have a monopoly on the Moink read, which is great because 
Moink is in fact anti-monopolistic in that it has challenged the hegemony of one company which controls 60% of U.S. pork production, and it's owned by the Chinese. And their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China itself. And yet you find it in your grocery aisle every day. But there is a better way. I would like to tell you about Moink. That's moo plus oink for Moink. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did. And as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does do it better. The Moink difference is a difference you can taste and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent too. This is how it works. You choose the meat that is delivered in every box once a month. You get ribeyes, chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, and much more. And of course, you can cancel any time, although you won't want to because it's so delicious. In fact, almost all of the meat that we eat in my household comes from Moink. And that is why, indirectly, of course, he doesn't know who I am. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Ring Doorbell founder Jamie Simonoff jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. Now, you want to get hold of that? You should do. Keep America Farming by signing up at moinkbox.com slash editors right now. And if you do that, listeners to the show will get free filet mignon on every order for a year. That's one year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time only, M-O-I-N-K box.com slash editors. Wow. Charlie, I have to say it. I think I can just, just tell from, from Maddie's reaction, your, your reads are even more, Moink reads are even more compelling in person. <laughs> I, I wish all our listeners could be in the room here. And when you were, when you were away... A week or two ago, I was doing the Moink read, and I couldn't say that chemical additive. And Jack helpfully noted, well, Charlie can say it, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> so I still don't know what it is, but that's very impressive. All right, so speaking of unimpressive things, Maddie, we had this, this House hearing about hatred uh, directed to against LGBTQ people. And this hearing is basically entirely devoted to the idea that we've bat around a fair amount here and, and find wholly unconvincing that any any rhetoric that uh, progressives find unwelcome issues related to to this topic is is hate incites hate and is leads directly to violence as Carolyn Maloney she was complaining about the these various so-called anti LGBTQ bills in state houses and congress it probably includes measures to keep males from competing in female sports etc she said these hateful pieces of legislation have fueled a dangerous rise in extreme anti-LGBTQI rhetoric. What do you make of it? Yeah, so for conservatives, we, we have a clear line where what counts as causing violence with speech is incitement to violence. So if you literally incite violence, then you, you've crossed a line. With these, so they, with the hearing, they had a, a number of survivors from these terrible uh, shootings in gay clubs, the Pulse nightclub and Club Q, I think it was called. And obviously, that's completely unconscionable and everybody can sympathise with the, the survivors and the victims' families. It's horrific. The, the problem is that this level of violence is then conflated with gen, genuinely unpleasant, hateful speech, which we might all agree is, is unpleasant and hateful. But then that is conflated with just traditional views on sexuality, traditional views on marriage or even nervousness with rushing into these transition treatments for minors. 
So not only are you putting all in one basket, the murderers, but you're also putting in journalists who report critically on this stuff. I mean, one of the things they're complaining about is that after it's become a source of, of journalistic inquiry, these transition treatments for minors, that they've had harassment, quote unquote, outside these clinics. Well, I'm sorry, but if you do controversial experiments on minors, people are going to be upset. People are going to protest if they want to protest. Some people will send nasty emails. I think everybody at this table is, has been the recipient of nasty emails at some point. It's it's not pleasant, but... Charlie's checking his phone right now just to see, just in case. It's Seeing how many I in. need to put into the <laughs> yeah. nasty emails folder that I have. It's not, it's not a pleasant experience. It would be better if people didn't do it, but it's not the same thing as fearing for your life. And this conflation is just an effort to bully people into self-censoring. It's an effort to to suggest that there has to be sort of legal interventions to stop people from from exercising their, their free speech and also from stopping uh, very sensible conservative policies such as restricting these gender experiments on minors. So, Charlie, Joe Biden signed the so-called Respect for Marriage Act the other day, and he said, quote, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, they're all connected, but the antidote to hate is love. Is that... True or false? <laughs> <laughs> the problem is not the idea that discrimination is a problem. The idea, uh, the problem is the idea that anything that Joe Biden doesn't like represents discrimination. And that's clearly what he's trying to do here. And that's what Maddie was saying. There's a big difference. The hearing in Congress was an absolute masterclass in the rhetoric that is used by these people. Uh, one after one. They said there is a direct line between the direct line between a bill that prevents a seven-year-old from being taught sexual material and a mass shooting. None of them actually filled in what the line looked like, how it got there, where it started, where it ended. They just asserted it. Uh, then, having done that, they suggested that if they were criticized in any way, that was also a problem because that would bring hate down on them as well. There was a brilliant moment when you saw the degree to which the whole thing is carbon ball when Nancy Mace, Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina, said to this absolutely appalling woman who is all over every New York Times piece and Washington Post piece at the moment as the self-appointed arbiter of taste and expert, apparently, in hate speech. Nancy Mace said to her, didn't you tweet that we should accost Supreme Court justices after the decision in Dobbs? And she said, well, yes, sort of. And then Nancy Mace put up this comedy-sized illustration of this, proving that she had literally said, accost them. And this lady said, well, you've taken that out of context. Now, there was no context. There was no other interpretation of it. This was not some Talmudic inquiry. It literally said on the tweet, we should accost the Supreme Court justices so that they are never again comfortable because of what they've done to the country with the Dobbs decision. And the funny thing is, I actually have no problem at all with that tweet. That tweet is not under American law unconstitutional, or rather it's not beyond the line to the point at which it would be legal for the government to act. So so have no problem, you mean legally or yeah. just no problem whatsoever? I don't think that this lady has to account for that tweet to Nancy Mace, but I do think she does if she's going to tell Nancy Mace and the rest of Congress over and over again that every single law that she doesn't like in the country is responsible for 
violence and killings and that anyone on the radio or who writes that she doesn't like is responsible for it. She can't then say, well, no, no, you didn't understand the context because it seems to me that the only different context here is that she wrote it and not someone she hates wrote it. But that's not a good enough standard. Um, And what Joe Biden is doing there is a lot less annoying uh, and a a lot less pernicious. But it's... uh, problematic nevertheless because there's there's no standard in there mm-hmm, he, he's right. just saying i get to decide what is bad everything is everything or hatred yeah and if you say it, you're to blame if anything bad happens you can't run a country like that oh you didn't even cue me up you just I'm get, I'm getting into you. this pointed at you <laughs> looking at you throwing stuff at you <laughs> yeah. uh, what is the mitchell and webb aggressive negative feedback uh yeah, I would actually, I, would, I want to slightly disagree with Charlie on which of these comments is more pernicious, because I think that the Biden, the, what Biden said about the answer to hate being love, what's going on there is, on the one hand, an escalation of the language to directly connect to violence, and that's really tenuous. And then wh- what happens next is a everything just sort of gets bundled together. And that's, I think, the Joe Biden's 80-year-old brain's way of of defining or understanding intersectionality, perhaps as his father uh, explained it to him back in, in the 50s. Yeah. 1957. <laughs> right, right. He said, Joey, that's intersectionality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think that, so it would make sense for a, a politician of Biden's stripe, a sort of old-fashioned Democrat, to engage in a, a, like an interest group level politics where you you lump all these groups who don't seem to have the same interests together just to kind of cater to them all as part of your coalition. But I think... The way that he's escalated this is a testament to how the left has changed uh, to some degree since then, in that now you have this attitude of of affirmation being mandatory, such that when he says the answer to hate is love, he's really gonna like if you don't love people in the if you don't love all the same things in the same ways that he wants you to, then he's gonna hate you. And it reminds me of the. Um, line that King George III sings in Hamilton about, he'll send you a fully armed battalion to remind you of his love. And so what that ends up uh, leading to, and one of the many reasons why I was uncomfortable with the Respect for Marriage Act, despite our internal debate that we had here on it, is that it seems to me a possible prelude to uh, a a nation where love so defined wins, and it's just this hammer that is brought down conveniently on everyone that Looks a lot like hate to me at the end of the day, uh, because love. How can you? How can you? How dare you contest love? All you need is love. To, to quote a, a band that is easily, easily suborned to this purpose. Not, um, not as good as Taylor Swift, but oh, what? <laughs> so, okay, we have so, we have a new uh, third segment now. So, Maddie, Jack hit on just exactly what I was going to go to you on. So, yeah, the problem with the the Biden statement both is how he defines hate and how he defines love. Yeah, no, exactly. I I think it's. It's just astonishing that we've come this far so quickly. This was something that prior to the Obergefell decision, Obama said people can disagree. Reasonable, good people can disagree on this issue. And we have gone from that, which which is true. That's that's the reality. We've gone from that to if you're not fully signed up to this, you're a hateful bigot who is responsible for the violent deaths of fellow citizens. And which, by the way, is amazing because... The Obergefell decision also says that it's not intrinsically bigoted to disagree with it and that people of good faith can disagree with one another on the question. Right, exactly. So, Charlie, exit question to you. There'll be some serious effort, not ultimately successful, but some serious effort by some collection of Democrats in Congress to try to 
take sort of a campus-like attitude to speech they deem hateful to LGBTQ people and ban it or suppress it in some form, yes or no? Yes, but it doesn't worry me because I don't think it would have the votes. And if it did have the votes, it would be struck down probably nine to nothing in the Supreme Court within about six minutes. Jack Butler. So hasn't this sort of thing happened in some respects already? I mean, this is things like the Equality Act, for example. Aren't there, isn't this attitude already percolating? So you're, you're asking if it's, it'll be successful? No, no, no. Just whether there'll be a serious effort at speech, excuse me, as such. Oh, yes. And I'm actually less sanguine about the, the it may end up instantiated in some way at some point in, it may, it may eventually be defeated, but it may prevail in some measure in some locality in a very distressing fashion. Many. Yeah. So I, I agree with Charlie that in the long term, it doesn't stand a chance it will, would be overturned if necessary by the Supreme Court. But I, I do think it has the potential to do a lot of damage in the meantime. And we're seeing this already with the efforts to redefine Title IX, and Jack mentions the Equality Act, which would be a menace if it passed. So they're definitely coming for speech. I agree with the yes but unsuccessful side of this question. So let's go from our to our final sponsor of this episode, Acton Unwind. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Who can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom. That's where Acton Unwind comes in. Just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute, there's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as it promotes a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit Acton dot org slash nr or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Acton Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's Acton.org slash nr to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. So Maddie, we've had these Netflix documentary un- unwinding with Harry and Megan airing their various grievances with the the royal uh, family. This has not gone over very well um, with with anyone in Britain, if you believe the polling. It's a popular series, but there's just the the sheer unseemliness of it. This latest episode, I've not watched a, a minute of it, uh, focused on the, this um, supposed back and forth and warfare between the press shops of, of all the royals. And uh, Harry felt as though he was treated extremely unfairly and was being lied to. And some statement was put out of comedy, you know, how there hadn't been an argument in his name. He didn't sign on to it. And and Megan was devastated uh, about this, apparently, and on and on. What do you make of it? Yeah, so I have actually watched four hours so far of the six in order to be able to write about it fairly. But yeah, I mean, you're watching two spoiled brats, basically, and it's it, very unseemly. and sort of staggeringly implausible that someone would have so little self-awareness. I, there's, I've just got to the part where um, Megan is talking about the Grenfell 
fire tragedy and she somehow manages to make that about her. And then there, there is this wonderful picture of her looking really sad and, and, and miserable. And the, and the backstory at this point in the documentary is that she's having such a hard time with the press and people are being mean about her mm-hmm. and, you know, saying she made Kate Middleton cry over a dress or something incredibly petty. And there's this picture of her all in black wearing, wearing a poppy, which obviously is to commemorate those who gave their lives for, for Britain in war. And you think, gosh, a little bit of perspective here. You're, you're standing there in black, supposedly remembering real suffering and real sacrifice. <laughs> you're crying over a dress. This is ridiculous. But I, I actually think it's, it's an insight into this victim mentality that has become so popularized now and so mainstream. I think it is slightly worse here in America, to be honest, than it is in the UK. And it, it seems to me that one of the most basic virtues that you should live by in life, one of the basic rules that even the mafia managed to get is don't trash your family. Right. It doesn't, at least if you can do nothing else, do amoral familialism. Right, the, right, right. Uh, exactly. Does. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter how bad they are. It doesn't matter how terrible they be. Just don't trash them in public. It's not that difficult. Uh, but but it is for them for some for some reason. There is one one part where Megan's talking about how she no longer has a father, right? She had a falling out with her dad because I think he he uh, money changed hands with paparazzi, staged some photos. Obviously, not a good thing it to happens. do. It happens. These things happen in any, any <laughs> family. Obviously, not a good thing to do. But hey, this is the man who like gave you life. This is the man who raised you for a good portion of of your life. Do you think you could forgive him or at least stop? trashing him in public but no he's he's dead to her i saw a, a good uh little segment from megan kelly's show where she was just saying like how dare you like some of us lost our dad young and here you are saying like you don't have a dad he lives three hours away from you <laughs> this is ridiculous so yeah not not very impressive stuff but obviously i watched it so there, there's something is it, there. is it interesting to watch it's, it's well it's very slow paced because they've kind of They've already done all this. They've already spoken to Oprah. Mm-hmm. They've already we've we've heard a lot of this before. So it's a little it's a little slow. It's a little boring. But then every once in a while, she says something so funny for all the wrong reasons. Obviously, not meaning to be funny. That it's kind of entertaining. <laughs> so so Charlie, do you think they they really feel this sorry for themselves, or are they they just attention attention hounds? <sighs> <laughs> I don't know. I find them baffling. My wife also watched the show and hates them. I think they call it hate watching. That's <laughs> certainly what she did. Maybe that pops up as a number at Netflix and they think, great, success. At some point, though, the trick has to end, surely. They can't get too much more mileage out of this, can they? As I said before, I think that I have effectively no sympathy for her whatsoever because she chose to marry in. I have a lot more sympathy for, say, Prince Charles, who probably didn't want to have been born the next in line to the throne. I've drawn this analogy before with immigration. I think if you were born in America and you hate America, you just don't like it. You don't like the weather or the political system or the trees and you say America's terrible. All right, I think you're wrong, but that seems to me a lot more defensible than if you move here by choice. If you uproot yourself from your home country and you move to America and you say, you know what, America's terrible. Well, you're sort of an idiot then, aren't you, for moving there? And that's how I feel about Meghan Markle. She keeps complaining about this family that she chose to marry into. And 
Yes, it is different than marrying into most families. But actually, if you take it down to the normal person level, if you married somebody and then resolved to constantly bitch about their parents or their brother, they would quite fairly say, well, hold on a minute. You knew you were getting into this and you owe me something as the person you married. These Not conversations, to do that. These conversations do actually happen, right? This, is, this isn't merely theoretical. Right. And when they do happen, after a while, the aggressor in the situation loses the sympathy of everyone in the vicinity. And they say, well, could you just turn it down and try and make nice at Thanksgiving? And they're not making nice at Thanksgiving. They're making Netflix documentaries in which they lob bombs at their their family. And I just don't understand why it is garnering so much attention, especially given that almost everyone I've ever spoken to, and opinion polls back this up, seems to dislike them and think they're ridiculous. So I just can't wait for them to go away, frankly. <laughs> so, this is all making me think of Henry David Thoreau, and I'll explain why. The When the transatlantic telegraph cable was installed, Henry David Thoreau was against it, as he was against many things of this nature. And he said that one of the reasons... Probably would have opposed killer robots, too. Oh, he certainly would have. Or, or he would have secretly used them while he was complaining about them. But anyway, the he said that it may turn out that Texas and Maine have nothing to say to each other and that all we may learn from, from England is that uh, Princess Adelaide has the whooping cough. So I, I've, I've recalled this quote, which I've perhaps butchered a little bit from a lack of having memorized it, but in the context of all of this royal family stuff. And I, I guess I'm more on the Phil Klein side of not actually caring about this. I, I consider it a, a kind of, birthright as an American not to care. I'm not against the monarchy in England. I think it's, for for the English, it's a good institution, but I just don't really feel like caring about it. And so I, I, I don't like having to pay attention to these people who actually, the worst thing about them is that it's sort of the worst of both worlds, because now they have all of the worst aspects of American celebrity culture combined with the tawdry dregs of monarchy and it's just all mixed up in this toxic stew of platforming and self-promotion and self-pity and I'm just to the extent I care about this at all I'm disgusted by it and cannot wait for them to you know in, in, a, in another to time what? <laughs> in another time they may have gone into exile perhaps that would be the that would have been the respectable thing to well, do well you know uh, I've been reading a lot about the middle ages and just as far as royal misbehavior goes in, in human history th- this is not this, no I know that's this, important this to keep very, into context yeah I mean Harry would have been he would have been banished to a monastery or died in mysterious circumstances or just be killed in battle, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that's much how more it, noble. There are no family paths. values among, among <laughs> royals. Yes, but we don't. We live in a, in a different age when the values of celebrity prevail, and so we get ridiculous spectacles such as this. And I, I cannot. If you, if anyone is looking for a good way to torture me, just do Clockwork Orange style and force me to watch this show, and I think it'll have the desired effect. Because I have no interest in it whatsoever. And the, and the sooner that these these two recede from the headlines, the better. All right. So, Matt, we all agree they're terrible. So, exit question <laughs> to you, though. So, what's what's uh, what t- tips the um, the balance for you? Uh, is this a stinging, more a stinging indictment of our culture that these people exist and they think this way and act this way? Or is it more heartening that most people hate them? I think the former. I, I'm not actually convinced that most people do mm-hmm. hate them. I mean, obviously, the circles that we move in, uh, the people we talk to generally are sensible people. But I think there's a lot of people who think, wow, they're telling their truth. Like, they're, they're only too ready to believe that the British monarchy are racist, that 
that Britain is racist. There's, mm-hmm. I, I think it was my friend Freddie Gray who, who said, you know, the problem in Britain is that the demand for racism well outpaces the supply. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so basically as soon as there's somebody who says, hey, I found one, there's a racist over there, mm-hmm. everyone gets very excited. And I think, I think that's, basically, that's basically what we're seeing. Sure. It's more heartening that people don't buy into it. I like to see a connection between behavior and consequences. And <laughs> the consequences, at least in the polling realm, have been that people look at them and say, ugh. Jack Butler. I guess I'm more depressed that they're a thing at all. And I think in, in many elite circles and whatnot, I, weren't they recently at some sort of UN hearing or something? I mean, the, the fact that uh, they're taken seriously in venues such as that is depressing in itself. Yeah, I'm going to go on the depressing end on this one. They just it they are a product. This whole thing is a product of our culture and the culture of of victimhood and the elevation of victims or alleged victims. So it's a it's a very bad thing. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our increasingly extensive metered paywall. Your way if you sign up and log in to see many fewer ads, especially the most annoying and obnoxious ads. It might distract you when you're reading. And also, once you become a member, you can get deeper into the NR community. You can comment on articles and blog posts. You can get invited to exclusive events with our writers and editors and other conservative figures. And you can even be part of our private Facebook group if that floats your boat. It is the time for Christmas giving. So if you don't feel so moved to sign up yourself, which you definitely should, please give the gift of NR Plus to, to someone who you think would enjoy it or who it might help influence and help see the the benefits of right reason nr plus please check it out today so it's time uh, let's hit a few other things before we go jack butler you're enjoying well you didn't say you're enjoying but you you, you are around <laughs> your colleagues well i might have said that before this podcast recorded no i'm enjoying it there are many people on national view staff that this reminds me of a scene from at the end of Die Hard when the cop and John McClane, who have been corresponding via walkie-talkie the whole time, they finally meet and they instantly know each other and they embrace. And it's a very heartfelt end to an action film. And this has been there's been a moment like this when actually meeting many of my colleagues for the first time. It's, we've had all these interactions in the course of website or magazine duties, but some of them I hadn't met before. Now here they are. They're real people, not just uh, digital avatars. So it's been pleasant i've enjoyed it i it is not merely a fact i'm remarking you don't, you don't feel compelled to say that you're no just, you're i being don't honest right now i'm i'm compelling myself you can't <laughs> see this dear listener but maddie's actually got a meat cleaver <laughs> holding it to jack's neck well, Ma- maddie is is so so big she might be drawn in by the same sort of celebrity culture that's affected uh, <laughs> Harry and she was an extra in a movie yes my friend is making a movie which which sounds like my friend's making a movie but it's it's a legit movie and they needed an extra kind of last minute and I so I went last night and my role was to walk up to a club and get in and then he which happens to you all the time right? <laughs> yeah. well actually it's hard trying to find an outfit for a club because I don't really I don't really go to clubs so um but the thing is it was absolutely freezing last night and so it was funny because the the actual actress was like talking to the director saying oh do you mind if I wear pants because I'm kind of 
called and the director was like, yeah, of course. Like, you're, we're not even going to have your legs in this shot. That's fine. And I was like, oh, great. Do you mind if I do? She was like, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I realized life is tough as an extra, but it was a lot of fun. So, Charlie, you've been listening to sports radio, listening to the week-long analysis of the Jaguars' victory over the Titans. I'm yeah, sure. I have. That, <laughs> the, that is what prompted On it. it. It never stops. It never stops. I'm sorry. I mean, that was what prompted it, the glorious oh, really? Jaguars' victory yeah, over the Titans last week. <laughs> but I don't normally listen to sports radio. I have friends who listen to sports radio and tell me what people are saying on sports radio, but I don't listen to it. But the, the local station where I am is 1010XL and... They talk all the time about the Jags. And it's remarkable how much these people know, which sounds obvious because, of course, that is their job. But it's just astonishing to me how much these people know about the Jacksonville Jaguars. Mm. Every single player on the Jacksonville Jaguars, probably everyone who has ever played for the Jacksonville Jaguars since the expansion in 1995, they know what each player did in each week. They know what someone being out is going to do to the team. They can anticipate ahead of time tactical shifts or threats and weaknesses and you know you just realize listening to this how little you know about the game yeah you kind of think oh i i could do that yeah no, you couldn't you, <laughs> it's you like could. them sitting around this table they wouldn't they might be interested in politics but they can't do this right most of them and we couldn't do that indeed so i lost a debate last night i was debating whether americans should value nationalism at something called the soho forum it was great da- downtown Manhattan, but I didn't realize it was basically a, a Reason magazine event, so a very liberal, libertarian-leaning audience. And the, the key to winning debates in Manhattan, if you're conservative, Oxford-style debates where you, the audience votes beforehand and afterwards, is to lose like so big in, in the initial vote that that you just you convince like two people, right? You know, out of two hundred, and you've won. But unfortunately, my my vote was surprisingly strong initially, and I only moved like three percent of people. And my adversary at the Cato Institute, who who's very good and lively, moved fourteen percent of people. So it was I, I had to slink off, having been defeated. With that, it's time for our editor's picks, Jack Butler. My pick is uh, Pradeep Shankar's piece on the case against the U.S. military's COVID vaccine mandate. This has been a tricky issue, but I I think Pradeep has the balance of the argument that. The mandate no longer makes sense as policy, especially given what we know about what the vaccines can and can't do. Pradeep is a pro-vaccine, but acknowledges that there are limits to their ability to stop transmission. And so if that's the case, then it doesn't it increasingly doesn't make sense to have them mandated as part of Pentagon policy, which is now sort of a live issue and Perhaps it will end up going his way. It looks like that. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? My pick is Wesley J. Smith's corner post on bioethics. I just think he is always very astute and can be relied upon. So, And if if I could also add a pick yet to come. Well, Jack- a pre-pick? Are you not going to have a pick next <laughs> a week? A pick of, of Christmas is yet to come. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to say Jack Butler normally writes something on It's a Wonderful Life. Oh. And I'm I'm very much hoping he's going to do that again this year. Are you going to do that again this year? <laughs> well, I guess I have on. to know. I do have an idea for this. So, yes, I, uh, now <laughs> so I have write, to do it. You write a fresh piece every – I wasn't I wasn't aware of this. I guess I am. I did last year. I did the year before. Jack, so, yes. if, you, if you don't say yes, you'll bring the meat cleaver back. <laughs> Well, this is funny. I, there was an episode of the editors, I think last year, where someone did this to a piece that didn't exist yet and and realized and we started joking about the, the potential power of saying, like, 
Charlie, I'm looking forward to your piece on the uh, <laughs> on the the animal balloon festival. Yeah. <laughs> the it's like next assignment that they can't. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so now, but I'll do it. Sure, why not? Okay. It's a great movie, but I just I can't I just can't watch it anymore. It's just been so overplayed, and uh, I just can't. No, not just once a year. No, it's just it's just too much. I don't know oh. when the tipping point was, but it was it was too much. A, a war frustrated old man. <laughs> Even that's like it's too much. I don't I don't want to hear that. <laughs> well, too late. Shall I cook? I don't know if anyone's chosen this before, but I am going to pick Ryan Mills' piece, "How to Count Like Florida," mm-hmm. from the magazine, which explains how to count like Florida. How Florida went from being a laughing stock in two thousand. Uh, the focus of all the anger and upset and hope to the state that just gets it right on election night, that delivers its results within two or three hours and then goes to bed or has a drink or whatever people do after an election. And this is a great explanation of the journey, which took quite a long time, actually. It wasn't done overnight. And really, every state could just read Ryan's piece and then say, that's what we're going to do for the next 10 years, and the country would be better off for it. So my pick is a book review in the new issue called The Midwestern Century by a guy named Hendrik Meyer, and it's a review of John Lack's new book, The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. I'm not, there's, I'm not a Midwesterner. There's no regional patriotism here, but John Lack is a very serious guy, and uh, this is a book that deserves to get as much attention as possible. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Maddie. Thanks to Jackie B. Thanks to the Fire Moink and Acton Unwind. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.